Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for November 29th through December 5th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, sections 137 and 138. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Good to see you, Scriptures. Wow, we are looking close to the end here. We're almost to the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So much exciting stuff still to talk about. Now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 15 minutes, 2 seconds. Wow, that is not long at all. What would it be daily? 2 minutes, 9 seconds. Super easy. Here we've got time codes if you want to take it section by section, or buckle up and let's talk about them all together. Here we've got a chart of the revelations, the where and the when, and you'll notice that we've started to get into the orange. So we've got later revelations happening here. You can see on the chart, if you'll remember last week, we left off in 1847 with section 136, but now we need to turn the clock back 11 years to 1836. With that, let's take a look at section 137. We'll get our introduction from the Institute Manual. On the afternoon of the 21st of January, 1836, Joseph Smith and the church presidency met in the council room above the printing office to take another step in preparation for the endowment. Following biblical precedent, these church leaders washed their bodies with water and perfumed themselves with a sweet-smelling wash. That evening, Joseph Smith and his counselors in the First Presidency and other church leaders gathered in an upper room of the nearly finished Kirtland Temple. According to Oliver Cowdery, the members of the church presidency were anointed with the same kind of oil and in the same manner that were Moses and Aaron and those who stood before the Lord in ancient days. The presidency first anointed church patriarch Joseph Smith Sr.'s head with consecrated oil and gave him a blessing. The patriarch then anointed the church's presidents in the order of their ages. Now, when we say presidents, we're referring to those in the Quorum of the Twelve. Going back to the introduction, when Joseph Smith Sr. anointed the head of Joseph Smith, he sealed upon him the blessings of Moses to lead Israel in the latter days. After the patriarch blessed his son, Joseph Smith received blessings and prophecies under the hands of all the presidency. After the prophet Joseph Smith was blessed, the heavens were opened, and the prophet and several of those present had visions and revelations. Joseph Smith recorded, Many of my brethren who received this ordinance with me saw glorious visions also, angels ministered unto them, as well as myself, and the power of the highest rested upon us. The house was filled with the glory of God, and we shouted Hosanna to God and the Lamb. On that occasion, the prophet had a vision of the celestial kingdom. The prophet Joseph Smith's vision of the celestial kingdom, which is now recorded in Doctrine and Covenants section 137, was not part of the standard works until 1976. During the April General Conference of that year, the church voted to accept this vision as scripture. 
While this revelation was originally placed in the Pearl of Great Price, it was determined in 1979 that it would become Section 137 in the 1981 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, you may recall that the 1981 was the first, what we would call the LDS edition of the scriptures. And that was when we, in 1979, published the Bible and then the triple combination in 1981. And they were meant to be all one cross-referenced unit of scriptures. We commonly call that the LDS edition of the scriptures. If you'll remember, we recommended a documentary called That Promised Day that talks all about the formation of those scriptures. It's a great documentary, highly recommended. Yep, and you can see it for free on BYU TV. So let's take a look at the Revelation, starting in verse 1. The heavens were opened upon us, and I beheld the celestial kingdom of God and the glory thereof, whether in the body or out, I cannot tell. Now that last phrase is borrowed from Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. The Institute Manual expounds upon this a little further with a quote from the prophet Joseph Smith. This comes from Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Joseph Smith. He says, quote, All things whatsoever God in his infinite wisdom has seen fit and proper to reveal to us while we are dwelling in mortality in regard to our mortal bodies are revealed to us in the abstract and independent of affinity of or connection to this mortal tabernacle, but are revealed to our spirits precisely as though we had no bodies at all, end quote. Well, that's an interesting concept. So let's go on to verse two. I saw the transcendent beauty of the gate through which the heirs of that kingdom will enter which was like unto circling flames of fire, also the blazing throne of God, whereon was seated the Father and the Son. I saw the beautiful streets of that kingdom, which had the appearance of being paved with gold. I saw Father Adam and Abraham and my father and my mother, my brother Alvin, that had long since slept. Now that's interesting that he saw his father and mother now, remember, it's 1836. Both his father and his mother were still alive. In fact, his father was in the room when he right. had the vision. Yeah. Now, the fact that he saw his father and his mother in the celestial kingdom along with Alvin, wouldn't that kind of imply that Joseph's parents had their calling and election made sure? It certainly seems that way to me. It's an interesting thing to think about. At the very least, this is quite prophetic. Mm-hmm. Let's go on. I've got a couple of resources that might give us some background on why Alvin is such an important part of this revelation. From the Institute Manual, Church History in the Fullness of Times, it says, Joseph Smith loved and admired his brother Alvin. Alvin loved Joseph too, and he supported Joseph in his preparation to receive the gold plates from the angel Moroni. In November 1823, when Alvin was 25 years old and Joseph was 17, Alvin suddenly became gravely ill. As his condition worsened and it became apparent that he would soon die, he counseled Joseph, I want you to be a good boy and do everything that lies in your power to obtain the records. Be faithful in receiving instruction and keeping every commandment that is given you. Now, also from the teachings of the presidents of the church, Joseph Smith, in that manual, it says, 
Alvin's death brought great sorrow to the Smith family. A Presbyterian minister in Palmyra, New York, officiated at Alvin's funeral. As Alvin had not been a member of the minister's congregation, the clergyman asserted in his sermon that Alvin could not be saved. William Smith, Joseph's younger brother, recalled, the minister intimated very strongly that Alvin had gone to hell. For Alvin was not a church member, but he was a good boy, and my father did not like it. Now, before we go on, also keep in mind that baptism for the dead was not preached to the saints until Seymour Brunson's funeral in 1840, as we've talked about before. And so this is kind of the first intimation of the concept of work for the dead. And it's interesting that this surprises Joseph. Indeed. Let's take a look at verse 6. And marveled how it was that he, this is Alvin we're talking about, had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time and had not been baptized for the remission of sins. Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I love that concept. I've got a quote here from then Elder Dallin H. Oaks. This is from an Enzyme article in June of 1986. He's got some great thoughts about that. But I just wanted to point out that as important as this notion of desire is, that the understanding that there will be ordinance work for the dead is not quite developed yet. And so we're seeing here, even though we're getting this revelation later in the year, if you can reflect back to when this was given, recognize that this is one of the steps that will help prepare their hearts for the incredible doctrines of the work for the dead. Let's take a look at Elder Oaks's comments. He says, the desires of our hearts will be an important consideration in the final judgment. Alma taught that God granteth unto men according to their desire whether it be unto death or unto life, according to their wills, whether they be unto salvation or unto destruction. Yea, he that knoweth good and evil, to him it is given according to his desires. That is a sobering teaching, but it is also a gratifying one. It means that when we have done all we can, our desires will carry us the rest of the way. It also means that if our desires are right, we can be forgiven for the mistakes we will inevitably make as we try to carry those desires into effect. What a comfort for our feelings of inadequacy. We should not assume that the desires of our hearts can serve as a substitute for an ordinance of the gospel. In the justice and mercy of God, these rigid commands pertaining to essential ordinances like baptism and temple marriage, are tempered by divine authorization to perform those ordinances by proxy for those who did not have them performed in this life. Thus, a person in the spirit world who so desires is credited 
with participating in the ordinance just as if he or she had done so personally. In this manner, through the loving service of living proxies, departed spirits are also rewarded for the desires of their hearts. That's beautiful. Well, let's finish up the revelation. Verse 10. And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. Now that's interesting, and that correlates well with the previous verse, verse 8, that says, Also all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts, shall be heirs of that kingdom. It's that same concept of justice and mercy in regards to those who die before the age of accountability. From the Institute Manual, we have this great quote from President Thomas S. Monson. This comes from October 1998 General Conference. He says, quote, There is only one source of true peace. I am certain that the Lord who notes the fall of a sparrow looks with compassion upon those who have been called upon to part, even temporarily, from their precious children. The gifts of healing and of peace are desperately needed. And Jesus, through his atonement, has provided them for one and all. The prophet Joseph Smith spoke inspired words of revelation and comfort. All children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. The mother and father who laid down their little children, being deprived of the privilege, the joy, and the satisfaction of bringing them up to manhood or womanhood in this world, would, after the resurrection, have all the joy, satisfaction, and pleasure, and even more than it would have been possible to have had in mortality in seeing their children grow to the full measure of the stature of their spirits. This is as the balm of Gilead to those who grieve, to those who have loved and lost precious children, End quote. What an incredible doctrine. It's great. Love it, love it. Well, let's go on to section 138. Now for this, we need to set the clock forward 82 years in the future from the last revelation all the way to 1918. This revelation was received by Joseph F. Smith. Remember the F. (laughs) Who you'll remember is Hiram Smith's son. We'll get our introduction from the Institute Student Manual. It says this. On October 3rd, 1918, President Joseph F. Smith experienced a vision of the spirit world that revealed important truths about the redemption of the dead. The death of Joseph F. Smith's father, Hiram Smith, in 1844, when Joseph F. was only five years old, and the death of his mother, Mary Fielding Smith, in 1852, when Joseph F. was only 13 years old, acquainted him with loss at a young age. In addition, President Smith had also lost several of his own children and other family members throughout his life. This caused him significant pain and may have led to his pondering on the subject of the dead. The year 1918 had been an especially difficult one for President Joseph F. Smith. In January, his beloved eldest son, Elder Hiram Max Smith, had died suddenly of a ruptured appendix. In February, a young son-in-law died after an accidental fall. And in September, Hiram's wife Ida 
died just a few days after giving birth, leaving five orphaned children. At the time of this revelation, the devastation of World War I and a worldwide flu epidemic had taken millions of lives. President Smith's own poor health may have also been on his mind. The day after President Smith received his vision of the spirit world, he spoke during the opening session of the October 1918 General Conference. I will not, I dare not, attempt to enter upon many things that are resting upon my mind this morning, and I shall postpone until some future time, the Lord being willing, my attempt to tell you some of the things that are in my mind and that dwell in my heart. I have not lived alone these five months. I have dwelt in the spirit of prayer, of supplication, of faith, and of determination, and I have had my communications with the Spirit of the Lord continuously. Ten days after the conference, President Smith dictated his vision of the spirit world to his son, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. President Smith's counselors in the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the Patriarch to the Church approved the vision as revelation on October 31, 1918. The written account of the vision was added to the Pearl of Great Price in 1976. In 1979, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles announced that the vision would be added to the Doctrine and Covenants as Section 138 in the 1981 edition of the Scriptures. Right. So both these revelations, 137 and 138, were added to the Pearl of Great Price in 1976 and then later moved to the Doctrine and Covenants in the 1981 edition. That's kind of exciting. It is very exciting. And it's interesting that the reference that people had beforehand was the edition of the Improvement Era. That's where this was first printed. And so that became an important source for those who wanted to reference this revelation but then it was later added to the canon of Scripture. Another good reason to read your church magazines. Absolutely. So let's take a look at this revelation, starting in verse 1. On the 3rd of October in the year 1918, I sat in my room pondering over the Scriptures. Now there's an important <laughs> thing. First of all, it reminds me right away of one of my favorite Elder Bruce R. McConkie quotes about the scriptures and revelation. And it was quoted not too long ago by Elder Dallin H. Oaks in an article in the January Enzyme of 1995. Okay, so I guess it was a little while back. It's called Scripture Reading and Revelation. So if you're interested in the connection, I recommend this article. But here's the quote. He says, Elder Bruce R. McConkie said, I sometimes think that one of the best kept secrets of the kingdom is that the scriptures open the door to the receipt of revelation. Now, before I go on with the quote, I should just point out what a great way to capture someone's attention. I think one of the best kept secrets of the kingdom. Pause. <laughs> what? Scriptures open the door to the receipt of revelation. Going on with the quote. This happens because scripture reading puts us in tune with the Spirit of the Lord. The idea that scripture reading can lead to inspiration and revelation opens the door to the truth that a scripture is not limited to what it meant when it was written, but may also include what that scripture means to a reader today. 
Even more, scripture reading may also lead to current revelation on whatever else the Lord wishes to communicate to the reader at that time. We do not overstate the point when we say that the scriptures can be a Urim and Thummim to assist each of us to receive personal revelation. You know, we've talked about this several times on the show, but it is so important when you read the scriptures, when you take that time to read, the revelation that you may receive may not have anything to do with what you just read. Yep. And it may not even matter that you understood what you just read. Yeah, it opens the door to the receipt of revelation. Such an important principle. I've had times in a classroom where there are students, I remember one in particular, a young lady, who was asking questions and responding to things that we weren't talking about. And it wasn't because she wasn't paying attention. She was in the scriptures, but she was having a completely different experience between the Lord and her and what she needed in her life. The door of revelation was open to her and it was exciting to watch that. So yeah, I can testify of the truth of this for myself. So I love that this revelation begins by again reminding us, and think about how many other times this year revelations have come because of pondering the scripture or scriptural principles. And then the revelation happened. One more quote to further cement this idea in. This comes from the Institute Manual. This is Elder D. Todd Christofferson from the April 2004 General Conference. He says, quote, It is a good thing sometimes to read a book of Scripture with a set period of time to get an overall sense of its message. But for conversion, you should care more about the amount of time you spend in the Scriptures than about the amount you read in that time. I see you sometimes reading a few verses, stopping to ponder them, carefully reading the verses again, and as you think about what they mean, praying for understanding, asking questions in your mind, waiting for spiritual impressions, and writing down the impressions and insights that come so you can remember and learn more. Studying in this way, you may not read a lot of chapters or verses in a half hour, but you will be giving place in your heart for the word of God, and he will be speaking to you, end quote. Now, this is important to remember, and I should point out that when we present reading times from the Scripturematic 6000 on the show, this is not meant to be a structured direction for how you study the scriptures. It's meant to be an encouragement. Reading the scriptures is daunting for most people, there are so many of them, and the language is sometimes complex, but look at your reading assignments this year. Even our most dense study week required less than seven minutes every day. Yeah. All of us can do that. And the more time we spend in the scriptures, the greater understanding through revelation and practice we'll receive. Understand by telling you how long it takes to read each week's assignment. We're not telling you how to study but we might be hinting that taking the time to simply read the assignment is better study than deciding not to read or study this week because you don't have time. We have time. Yeah. And if you don't think you do, make time. You'll be glad you did. Yes. And that really is, I hope you understand that encouragement. We can do it. Each one of us can spend a little time. Now, I know we spend a lot of time on that one concept in verse 1. 
might be an illustration in what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. But we feel very strongly about the power of the scriptures. In fact, we just can't get enough of them. Yeah, we really do love them. So let's go on in verse 2. And remember, he's been pondering in the scriptures. And this is a continuation of what he's been pondering. And reflecting upon the great atoning sacrifice that was made by the Son of God for the redemption of the world, and the great and wonderful love made manifest by the Father and the Son in the coming of the Redeemer into the world, that through his atonement and by obedience to the principles of the gospel, mankind might be saved. Now, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has an article that I think would be a really great complement to these verses. It's called The Atonement of Jesus Christ. It's from the March Enzyme of 2008. He says this, Some gifts coming from the atonement of Jesus Christ are universal, infinite, and unconditional. These include his ransom for Adam's original transgression. Another universal gift is the resurrection from the dead of every man, woman, and child who lives, has ever lived, or ever will live on the earth. Other aspects of Christ's atoning gift are conditional. They depend on one's diligence in keeping God's commandments. For example, while all members of the human family are freely given a reprieve from Adam's sin through no effort of their own, they are not given a reprieve from their own sins unless they pledge faith in Christ, repent of those sins, are baptized in his name, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and confirmation into Christ's church and press forward in faithful endurance the remainder of life's journey. Of course, neither the unconditional nor the conditional blessings of the atonement are available except through the grace of Christ. Obviously, the unconditional blessings of the atonement are unearned, but the conditional ones are not fully merited either. By living faithfully and keeping the commandments of God, one can receive additional privileges, but they are still given freely, not technically earned. The Book of Mormon declares emphatically that there is no flesh that can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. By this same grace, God provides for the salvation of little children, the mentally impaired, those who live without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so forth. These are redeemed by the universal power of the atonement of Christ and will have the opportunity to receive the fullness of the gospel after death in the spirit world, where spirits reside while awaiting the resurrection. Nice. Going back to the Revelation, verses 5 through 10, Joseph F. Smith tells us that he was impressed to ponder on two scriptures in the New Testament. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. Both of these scriptures have to do with the mission of Jesus Christ after he had died and before he was resurrected. In verse 11, as I pondered over these things which are written, the eyes of my understanding were opened, and the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me, and I saw the hosts of the dead, both small and great, and they were gathered together in one place, an innumerable company of the spirits of the just who had been faithful 
in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality, and who had offered sacrifice in the similitude of the great sacrifice of the Son of God, and had suffered tribulation in their Redeemer's name. Now, if you jump ahead to verses 38 to 49, you can see the names of some of the spirits who were there. Adam, Eve, Abel, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elias, Malachi, and Elijah, all of these and many more, even the prophets who dwell among the Nephites, were in his vision. And in verse 49, we see what were these spirits waiting for? They were waiting for deliverance. Verse 14, all these had departed the mortal life firm in the hope of a glorious resurrection through the grace of God the Father and his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. I beheld that they were filled with joy and gladness and were rejoicing together because the day of their deliverance was at hand. They were assembled awaiting the advent of the Son of God into the spirit world to declare their redemption from the bands of death. Now, if you skip ahead in the Revelation to verse 50, it tells us, For the dead had looked upon the long absence of their spirits from their bodies as a bondage. So that's the freedom and the deliverance they want. They want their bodies back. Yeah. Verse 17, Their sleeping dust was to be restored unto its perfect frame, bone to his bone, and the sinews and the flesh upon them the spirit and the body to be united, never again to be divided, that they might receive a fullness of joy. Now, that's a phrase we actually have talked about before in section 93. When our spirits and bodies are separated, we are unlike our Father in heaven and cannot receive a fullness of joy. Let's read those verses out of section 93. This is verses 33 and 34. It says, For man is spirit, the elements are eternal, and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy, and when separated man cannot receive a fullness of joy. So you can imagine how exciting this was for everyone. You can just imagine what it was like as they experienced Christ fulfilling his atonement. Well, let's go on in verse 18. While this vast multitude waited and conversed, Rejoicing in the hour of their deliverance from the chains of death, the Son of God appeared, declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. And there he preached to them the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of the resurrection and the redemption of mankind from the fall, and from individual sins on conditions of repentance. And going on in verse 20, But unto the wicked he did not go. And among the ungodly and the unrepentant who had defiled themselves while in the flesh, his voice was not raised. Neither did the rebellious who rejected the testimonies and the warnings of the ancient prophets behold his presence, nor look upon his face. Where these were, darkness reigned, but among the righteous there was peace. From the Institute Manual, we get a further exposition from Elder Bruce R. McConkie from his book, Mormon Doctrine, where he explains, quote, Before Christ bridged the gulf between paradise and hell so that the righteous could mingle with the wicked and preach them the gospel, 
The wicked in hell were confined to locations which precluded them from contact with the righteous in paradise. Now that the righteous spirits in paradise have been commissioned to carry the message of salvation to the wicked spirits in hell, there is a certain amount of mingling together of good and bad spirits. Repentance opens the prison doors to the spirits in hell. It enables those bound with the chains of hell to free themselves from darkness, unbelief, ignorance, and sin. As rapidly as they can overcome these obstacles, gain light, believe truth, acquire intelligence, cast off sin, and break the chains of hell, they can leave the hell that imprisons them and dwell with the righteous in the peace of paradise." End quote. This is such a powerful doctrine. And as we look at the next couple of verses, would you just imagine in your mind what this scene might have looked like? Starting in verse 23, And the saints rejoiced in their redemption, and bowed the knee, and acknowledged the Son of God as their Redeemer and Deliverer from death and the chains of hell. Their countenances shone, and the radiance from the presence of the Lord rested upon them, and they sang praises unto his holy name. Now, if this conjures up some vision for you, I should tell you that there's a scene from an old church movie called To This End Was I Born. And I just think it's got a great depiction of that event, of Christ appearing to the spirits in the spirit world. So I know it's old, the resolution isn't great, but let's just have a watch. just moves me every time. The swelling music, the embracing of Christ to the other spirits. It's just a wonderful, wonderful vision. It's beautiful. But let's get back to the revelation. Let's start in verse 28. Here we're going to get a powerful manifestation of the importance of pondering the scriptures and pondering your questions. Verse 28, and I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison, who sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, 
and how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. And as I wondered, my eyes were opened, and my understanding quickened, and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient who had rejected the truth to teach them. But behold, from among the righteous he organized his forces and appointed messengers, clothed with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. So the three days that Christ spent in the spirit world after his death were not spent preaching to all spirits directly, but spent organizing a missionary force among those in paradise. Yeah, and in the next verses, 31 through 37, it talks about the missionaries from paradise preaching to those in prison. In verse 33, these were taught faith in God, repentance from sin, vicarious baptism for the remission of sins, the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, and all other principles of the gospel that were necessary for them to know in order to qualify themselves, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So here's a little spoiler from our next lesson. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice there in verse 33, these are the four things that are being taught, but with one interesting exception. Instead of simply baptism by immersion, it is vicarious baptism for the remission of sins. In other words, the acknowledgement of you can't be baptized anymore, your spirit has departed your body, but someone can be baptized for you. Yeah. Again, such an incredible doctrine. And in the coming verses here, 38 through 49, we've already looked at those. We talked about them earlier, the many faithful saints throughout the earth's history who have been waiting for that deliverance. So let's jump ahead to verse 53. The prophet Joseph Smith and my father Hiram Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, and other choice spirits who were reserved to come forth in the fullness of times to take part in laying the foundations of the great Latter-day work, including the building of the temples and the performance of ordinances therein for the redemption of the dead, were also in the spirit world. I observed that they were also among the noble and great ones who were chosen in the beginning to be rulers in the church of God. Even before they were born, they, with many others, received their first lessons in the world of spirits and were prepared to come forth in the due time of the Lord to labor in his vineyard for the salvation of the souls of men. That had to have been amazing. I want to take just a moment to remind you that Joseph F. Smith was the son of Hiram Smith, and Joseph F. Smith was five when his father died. To see his father in this context had to have been amazing. Well, this whole vision just seems epic, just on an epic scale. Absolutely. And you can understand now why he may have been reticent to share it with everyone at conference. He must have felt overwhelmed. It had to have been such a sacred experience. He had to evaluate, well, how much of this do I share? Yeah. And what about this great principle in verse 56? 
Even before they were born, they, with many others, received their first lessons in the world of spirits and were prepared to come forth in the due time of the Lord to labor in his vineyard for the salvation of the souls of men. From the Institute Manual, we have this quote from President Russell M. Nelson. This is from October 2013 General Conference. He says, quote, Your spirit is an eternal entity. Your Heavenly Father has known you for a very long time. You, as his son or daughter, were chosen by him to come to earth at this precise time to be a leader in his great work on earth. You were chosen not for your bodily characteristics, but for your spiritual attributes, such as bravery, courage, integrity of heart, a thirst for truth, a hunger for wisdom, and a desire to serve others. You developed some of these attributes pre-mortally. Others you can develop here on earth as you persistently seek them, end quote. That's fantastic. And it gives such a great priority to which things about us are most important. Let's go on in verse 57. I beheld that the faithful elders of this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. Joseph S. Smith also said this in his book Gospel Doctrine. This is quoted in the Institute Manual. Now, among all these millions of spirits that have lived on the earth and have passed away from generation to generation since the beginning of the world, without the knowledge of the gospel, among them, you may count that at least one half are women. Who is going to preach the gospel to the women? Who is going to carry the testimony of Jesus Christ to the hearts of the women who have passed away without a knowledge of the gospel? Well, to my mind, it is a simple thing. These good sisters who have been set apart, ordained to the work, called to it, authorized by the authority of the holy priesthood to minister for their sex in the house of God for the living and for the dead, will be fully authorized and empowered to preach the gospel and minister to the women. Good clarification. This applies to both sons and daughters. So let's finish up this grand revelation, starting in verse 58. The dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinances of the house of God. And after they have paid the penalty of their transgressions and are washed clean, shall receive a reward according to their works, for they are heirs of salvation. Thus was the vision of the redemption of the dead revealed to me. And I bear record, and I know that this record is true, through the blessing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even so, amen. Wonderful. From the Institute Manual, we have this additional thought from President Lorenzo Snow. This was first published in the Latter-day Saints Millennial Star, January 22, 1894. He says, quote, I believe strongly, too, that when the gospel is preached to the spirits in prison, the success attending that preaching will be far greater than that attending the preaching of our elders in this life. I believe there will be very few indeed of those spirits who will not gladly receive the gospel when it is carried to them. The circumstances there will be a thousand times more favorable. End quote. Nice. Now, I've heard it suggested 
that all those who want to be saved in the celestial kingdom will be. Well, and that relates to what Elder Oaks was saying before about how important our desires are. But that begs the question, who wouldn't want to be? To offer a potential answer, consider the commitment and sacrifice it takes to become a celestial being. Yeah, we've talked about this back in section 88. We have to be willing to obey the celestial law in verse 22 in section 88. For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. For analogy's sake, we've mentioned on the show before that my wife plays violin for the orchestra at Temple Square. She's worked very hard at the violin, and it shows in her performances. She's mentioned that there are those who have said to her in the past, Oh, I wish I could play the violin like you. The reality is that anyone willing to sacrifice the time and practice and dedicate themselves to really playing the violin well will achieve their goal. What this person more than likely means is that they wish they could wake up one morning and play the violin beautifully without having paid the price of time and sacrifice. And I can testify to you that that's exactly what I mean when I tell someone, gosh, I really wish I could play the guitar. (laughs) I absolutely mean it. I wish I could do it without any effort or practice. I just snap my fingers and could play it. That's what I'm actually wishing. I recognize that I could do something with the guitar if I actually put the effort in. Well, I wonder if this wouldn't be similar to the situation in the afterlife. Many a terrestrial or telestial being may know full well the clear benefit of being a celestial being, but they lack the desire, the commitment, and the willingness to sacrifice all for it. And for each of us today in the church, maybe this would be a parallel that would help with this concept. We're all law-abiding citizens, yes, but are we? Which laws do we feel okay breaking? Does it have something to do with, I don't know, how we throw away our garbage, what speed we drive on the highway? We often come up with rationales for not being strictly obedient just to the laws of the land. How much more do we do that in spiritual matters? Now, I'm not saying that we have to obey everything. As Elder Oak said, where is our desire taking us? That's a huge part of it. But for some of us, we just don't care that much about being that righteous. And that's okay, because the rewards of the kingdoms to come are about giving us as much as we are willing to receive. And that's an incredibly merciful God. Absolutely. But with that, let us do all that we can We've been given the opportunity and the potential to have all that the Father hath. Let's shoot for that. That would be amazing. What an incredible revelation today and how grateful we are that the Lord saw fit to reveal this and that we could have it in our scriptures today. Well, that is the last section currently of the Doctrine and Covenants. And I say currently because who knows what the future holds for the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm -hmm. We may see additional revelations added even in our lifetime. Now we've got more to discuss. We still have a few more lessons this year. Keep reading your scriptures and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans.